0: Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new Redefining Cybersecurity Podcast with Sean Martin. Have you ever thought that we're selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Well, perhaps we are. Let's look at how we can organize a successful information security program that integrates business culture with people, process, and technology to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever.
1: Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions.
2: Hello, everybody. You're very welcome to a new episode of Redefining Cybersecurity here on the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. This is Sean Martin, your host, where I have the the, the fortune of connecting with people from all over the place uh, to look at how we can operationalize security uh, and do it in a way that not only protects the revenue that we generate, but actually helps companies create some of that revenue in the first place, uh, being more efficient and and wise in their risk management uh, procedures and, and efforts. Um, so you know the show, if you're listening to uh, listen for a while, um, I go all over the place. Today, we're gonna look at a role that I think a lot of you will be interested in, especially with some of the news that's been, been happening. And that's where CISOs don't always win. <laughs> <laughs> may not make the best choices, may not uh, have the best support, may not uh, get the results that, that they were anticipating. We can talk about it all different ways, but failure <laughs> is the, the one summation of, of, uh, of all of that. Um, and for those that follow me on LinkedIn, you probably saw that I've, I've written a few blogs in this. It's a four-part blog. I'm holding on the fourth part, but it's Why am I, am I wrong for not wanting to be a CISO is the name of the series. So uh, I talk a lot about the challenges and the, uh, the opportunity to fail uh, in in those posts. Um, But today I'm happy to have a conversation with Malcolm Harkins. And we're going to, we're going to talk about some of his learnings and experience in the industry and, and connection with others in the field. And we'll touch on some news things, I'm sure as well. Malcolm, it's great to have you on.
1: Thanks, Sean. Happy to be
2: here. And uh I think you've one one thing that's a constant is change, right? <laughs> so <laughs> the CISO role a few years ago looks different than it than it does decades ago and and uh today's tomorrow's gonna look different than today. And speaking of change, you you've been uh you've been on the move yourself, uh doing some cool new things. So why don't you, uh, if you don't mind, take a moment and give folks an update on what you're up to these days.
1: Yeah, thanks for that, Sean. So I recently joined uh, a company called Hidden Layer, winner of the 2023 RSA Conference Sandbox Innovation Award. Uh, Company was launched uh, almost two years ago, give or take a little bit, Uh, just closed its A round of funding. We're in the space of protecting people's advantage, protecting their artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I'm excited to be, again, on the bleeding edge of not only the explosive growth of AI in the world, but going to something near and dear to my heart because I've always worried about the implications of compromised AI and machine learning and, and how it could be weaponized in different ways, how it could be manipulated for malicious purposes in different ways. And you know, while we've seen that explosive growth, we've also seen uh, a wide variety of different ways to, to breach and manipulate um, artificial intelligence and traditional controls don't work. And so uh, it's great to be at, at that kind of edge of new controls and the edge of of new technologies to again do what I have my my trademark tagline protect to enable people data and business.
2: I love it. We we think alike there, Malcolm, for sure. And uh, you have a long history in in bringing new and advanced and funny enough AI enabled <laughs> protections <laughs> again uh, to uh, to market and. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've, uh, I've followed you along through the years. And uh, it's always, always amazing to see the good things you work on and all that you do for the community. So, again, thanks for having me on. Um, or having joining me, it's maybe it feels like your show. <laughs> um, so, as many times it happens, the uh, conversation is, is inspired by a, a post typically on LinkedIn. And uh, this is no different. Um, I follow you there. You, you did a post uh, back in August. We finally got around to, to chatting about it now. But it, the, the title of it is, Is It Time to Accept that the, C- the Current Role of the CISO Has Failed? And it was around this time that I started to put the, the series of posts together that I was working on as well. And I thought, let's have a good chat. So w- tell me, first off, what was the impetus for putting that together? Was it an event? Was it an aha moment? Was it you overheard something from somebody and you thought, I I need to get this off my chest now? What what drove you to put your words on on the screen?
1: Well, so go back in time. I've actually said for many years that the security industry has failed uh, as an industry itself. Um, And some of that is because of the economic incentives, because a lot of security companies, not all, but a lot, and certainly traditional ones who've been around for a long time, profit from the insecurity of computing, right? They make money the more risk that exists. And in some cases they wait till the risk has uh, manifested itself long enough that they can profit from it before they go solve it and bake it into existing solutions. And we've seen that over and over again. I think again, the the startup community is holding, uh, I'd say the traditional players much more accountable to Really being, you know, hopefully more innovative um, versus kind of milking their couch cows, which we've seen for years. Now, now getting to the the SISO side of it, and and the post, uh, th- there was a, actually a post that I read from somebody else that had talked about the CISO's role has failed, and and they went on to talk about it's too complex, and we got too many of this, and too many of that, and too many of this, all these things, and I'm like. I, that stuff annoys me. I'm like, quit whining. Um, you know what? If you want a C-suite job, you want a C-suite title, you want a C-suite pay grade, well, guess what? Suck it up and do the damn job. And that means deal with the complexities, deal with the liabilities, deal with the responsibilities, and deliver an outcome. right? And, and so now some of that, when you start clicking down, and you go, has there been failures in the the CISO role, or as I define it, chief security and trust officer, because I define it wider than, than the typical CISO role that nest under the CIO. Um, you know, for me, if you, you go back to basics, what is failure? It's a social concept, meaning that you did not meet desired or intended outcomes. Right. That That's the definition of failure. So. You look at it and you go, okay, well, if a CISO has failed, what outcomes didn't they deliver on, right? Or what intended objectives? And sometimes it is the CISO and their team that didn't meet objectives. Other times it is the organization itself: CEO, CFO, general counsel, that the board, the organizational inertia that agreed for you to hit a set of objectives, but frankly didn't fund you or allow you to actually do it, right? So you have two things that could potentially drive the failure. And sometimes when you have a combination of both, a company that will, I'll be really blunt, give lip service to saying security is important and all this stuff, but frankly, doesn't give a crap and, you know, the CEO will get up or CIO will get up during cybersecurity awareness month and do the rah-rah cybersecurity stuff and then go back to their office and then go, why is this, why are we doing this crap? And that's a low risk and, and you security team, you don't know what you're doing, you're getting in the way. I mean, you know, that happens, right? But there's also cases where, again, truly the security team and or the leader has failed to define the right objectives, and has def- failed to achieve it within the construct of, of the budget and time they were given. And, and that's clearly in my mind, a failure of the CISO.
2: Yep. Yep. And I, I know we want to talk about the, the, the three angles, uh, the individual, the, the organization, which you kind of alluded to a bit there. And also the, the industry, because I've seen a couple of the, the comments and one from, from Rick McElroy where, what does he say? I, I think we haven't achieved the success we all wanted, but I don't know if it's a complete fair is what he, what he started off with there. Um, and, and what you described and, and that point from Rick makes me think, we didn't know in the early days what success was. So we were just kind of going and doing and setting a bar sharing that bar with others sharing learnings with others and i think we've reached a point now where we the role is mature um but do we have a clear common understanding of what success looks like so that we can then say no we didn't achieve it <laughs> or well, is that still all over the place what do you think
1: I, it, I think it's still all over the place so i've asked this question a lot of peers for years. I mean, I've been in this area for now 22 years here in another few weeks. And and I, I've asked repeatedly over and over again, what is your design goal for your security program? What is your design goal? And people go, they go, well, I, you know, well, I want to achieve SOC 2 compliance or I want to achieve NIST CSF out of five, or I want to achieve, you know, a hygiene level of patching 99% of the systems, 99% of the time in our allotted SLA. Right. And I go,
2: I want a green dashboard.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I'm like, those are measures of motion, not measures of progress. And in some of those, compliance standards, while I adhere to them, like them in some ways, hate them in other ways, they are not a design goal to achieve an outcome, right? If we were building a building in California, we would have to meet a certain earthquake seismic rate for the earth to shake, for the building not to collapse. That's a design goal. Right? If I want to drive a car and go from zero to 60 in 2.7 seconds, that's a design goal. Or braking in a certain time period, that's a design goal. Crash test ratings for car, design goal. My design goal when I landed to run security and business continuity in the Intel IT organization 22 years ago, I looked, I'm a former finance guy, cash is king, spending money on security, didn't add to Intel's net income. <laughs> right? Yep. I, I had one primary goal and then a couple secondary goals. The primary goal was no material or significant event. That was job one. And doing that at the least total cost of controls with the least amount of friction and impediments on business velocity, right? So you look at it and you go 22 years ago, that was my goal. And I knew that as a former finance person and look at where the SEC is now going. Well, we got to talk about materiality. I'm like, look, it's always been about materiality, but you ask most CISOs what their design goal is and they are not either able or willing to say, my design goal is no material or significant events that would impact my shareholders, my stakeholders, or my customers. That should be number one design goal. Second design goal, which again, when I got silence, we're a security company, right? We're supposed to be protecting those who can't protect themselves. Well, guess what? That means I had to go above and beyond that design goal. You know what my second design goal was? Only a nation state actor should ever be able to get in and they have to work for it. The equivalent of saying, I've got a safe, and how long will my contents last at 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit? Guess what? Those are the type of design goals that we should be setting. Then we can actually figure out if we succeeded or failed. Now, a different company might go, material events are fine. Okay, well, what type of events are okay? And what type of threat actor is okay to get in? And how, how easy should we make it for them? Those are the design goals and standards we should be setting. And without doing that, you know, it becomes really hard to judge. Did you succeed or fail in any situation? Yet I know I can go back and say where I succeeded and where I failed because I know what my design goals are.
2: Now, I, I don't know that I've heard it lately, but it certainly was a mantra. I think maybe I heard it a couple of weeks ago. But it, it's certainly been a mantra for years. <laughs> That it's not if, but when, right? No such thing as 100% security.
1: But that's that's true of everything. You can't eliminate risk. You can't eliminate it physically. You can't eliminate it logically. You can't eliminate it in the financial markets, right? So there's no risk-free world. But what you can do is become really close to eliminating the potential of material impact. If you've designed your control environment appropriately,
2: so I have a feeling we're going to go a place I love because <laughs> around, around risk management. Because what what you're describing there is setting a goal, painting a, painting a path to achieve that goal, and, and mitigating risk and dancing around ambiguity to to get there, right?
1: Exactly. So, I'm like, look it you know, there's, you look at it, you go, there's three dynamics, what risk, at what cost, at what potential impediment to business velocity? And you go, okay, well, I don't want to impede the business that much, but I will, if it means I'm going to mitigate a material impact. And then the question just becomes how much money are you capable of spending? And, you know, this becomes a challenge with a lot of people, particularly the past 20 months or so, right? There's been studies that said, CISO's budgets have been growing unchecked. I get more money, more people, more this, more that. And guess what? The past 20 months, that went away. Growth of the security spending in many organizations flattened or went down. I talked to a lot of peers. They didn't know how to deal with a budget cut. I always did because I'm like, am I, you know, will this create a material event? No. Well, guess what? I can accept that risk. Why? Because the design goal says no material significant events. Anything less than that is an operational issue, and we'll deal with it when and if it comes.
2: So it makes a question for me. Um, and uh, I'll, I kind of pull back to a couple of conversations. We had one with Steve Katz and uh, one with Roland Cloutier, where we this idea of not just one CISO, but many CISOs specialized in different things, right? I think I actually wrote another post on this point as well. And so what I'm wondering is if we're being asked to do something that we being the CISO asked to do something that we're not good at should, should that goal be defined for us with enough detail that we know what we need to achieve because because it seems to me that that if we set it ourselves we kind of have a picture we, we work up to that goal <laughs> in, in my mind right based on yeah. what we think we can do yeah but,
1: but when you start doing that i think that the goal and again i know what my goals are i know you know but again somebody could define a slightly different goal but i think you have to have a goal that's a of the nature of what i talked about right you might say hey as long as the script kitty doesn't get in, that's good enough. Okay, well, that's your design goal, great. Um, you know, But but calibrate on those things with the organization, right? CEO, CFO, general counsel, and board. I, it's a bi-directional goal-setting process, right? But I think, and I know from my own truth of how I approach the role, you don't have multiple general counsels in a company. You don't have multiple CFOs in a company. You don't have multiple CEOs in a company. So if we have to have multiple CISOs so that we can specialize, then guess what? We're not a C-suite role. And that means me as an individual doesn't have the capacity to sit at that level. Okay, that's fine. Some people don't have it, great. We well, see we see the, we see in the inflated we see the, the inflated
2: roles all the time, right? And I is this a, a result of that? I mean, we, we see VPs of of marketing and VPs of engineering and VPs of sales that are fresh out of high school, <laughs> <and> <laughs> running a, running a startup, but they have the
1: title. Yeah. I do
2: with my my example.
1: Yeah, there is title inflation in in some companies. And in some organizations, but it doesn't necessarily have to be startups. I've seen title inflation and, you know, frankly, public companies that have gotten bought. I mean, look at I, you know, my background at Intel. Intel had a hundred and some thousand people when I was there. You know how many VPs and above there were? 300. When Intel acquired McAfee, there was what, 8,000 employees? You know how many VPs and above there were? Like 500. You go, okay, you know, different companies, <laughs> will have a different level of what I'll say title inflation.
2: Yep. Yep. So uh, help, help us understand then, Malcolm. Let, let, let's make the large assumption that some goals are defined, you may question them, how they're def- how they're articulated and, and whatnot. And maybe we touch out on that as well. But let's assume something is there. <laughs> where Where does it break down then? Is it, is it actually in architecting or designing or do we get swept up with, uh, with vendor talk and, and we, we try to put all stuff together that, that we're told we should buy or, or where do things yeah. break down?
1: Well, for me, it breaks down when, so let's just, you know, take a, you know, any one of the, the recent breaches in the news. That doesn't mean they failed. I've had you know systems that get popped and you know issues and even I wrote a paper on materiality earlier this year where I disclosed and explained how Intel was the first company that disclosed a cyber incident because it was potentially material under existing Sarbanes Oxley law in 2010. Right, so I, I look at it and I go, I think we failed when we haven't had the right dialogues, when we have succumbed to the pressure to water down, whitewash, or somehow dilute the portrait of risk. You know, I, I also did a thing on integrity um, back uh, a couple times, a couple of years ago, and even polled a number of CISOs. 76% of us said that we've been pressured to water down or dilute the portrait of risk to executives. When we do that, we've failed. Right? So for me, the CISO has failed when they are lacking integrity in what they're doing and how they're doing it. You can have mm-hmm. breaches and maintain integrity of the role and not fail. But if you, if you, if you don't hold your integrity intact, you will absolutely fail. Fail your customers, fail yourself, fail your shareholders.
2: Is that a is that a clear line, or, or is there? I mean, to me, when you start talking ethics and integrity, it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty straight. But who the heck knows? That's why I'm asking. <laughs> is it a clear no, line think- or? There, the gray there areas. Is,
1: I think there are there, The reality is there are gray areas There are times where I've stuck A stake in the ground on a risk Issue and I will not Budge I've done it every Organization every CIO reported To every CEO You know both in, in every company But along the path You might learn That your Data or your logic is missing components. That when you're saying no to uh, a business unit GM, and they're like, well, I disagree with you, there's low risk. No, this is high risk. Okay, well, risk is in the eye of the beholder. Well, if I'm the risk arbitrator, and I'm the person um, that's supposed to be the most expert in determining the risk, then my perspective should by and large, be taken and overrule other perspectives. Having said that, there are times where when you're walking that path, you learn something new from others, which is why risk calibration, risk dialogue, and that doesn't mean you're necessarily watering down the portrait of risk. but. If your data and logic are there and you say that it's a critical risk that needs to be addressed and has material impact and you understand the attack path to that exposure and the company disagrees with you, I think your obligation is to walk all the way up, including to the board, if it's a potential material issue. Now you might get overruled. Okay, I can disagree and commit for some things. There's other things I will not disagree and commit on and I'll put my badge on the table and say, you're wrong, and I'm not gonna go along with this, and I'm willing to risk my job and risk my career. No different than a CFO saying, you know, through the accounting and all this stuff, we can't account for things this way. And the CEO or business unit GM says, well, but I want to. Well, who's supposed to be in charge of financial integrity? The CFO, who's supposed to be in charge of the integrity of our cybersecurity state, we are. That's why, I, again, former finance person, I operate the role that way because I yeah. grew up wow. in finance. Brilliant.
2: I love it. I, anytime we can pull on another ex- another scenario, or role, or example, uh, where. Things just work that way because that's I, the, the general
1: way it's counsel, supposed to work. <laughs> exactly.
2: I, I often pull on GC. Yeah,
1: Yeah, the general counsel can say, well, the, the CEO said it was legal, so therefore it's legal. When you're, <laughs> you're the person who's supposed to be through your whole legal organization guiding a company to be legal it doesn't mean that illegal things sometimes don't get, you know, happen because a rogue person does something and stuff like that, but your job is to ensure legal compliance and that the company's operating in in um, an appropriate way legally. CFO, same thing, financial integrity. CISO, same thing around, not that you're eliminating the potential of a cybersecurity incident, that you one, have a design goal, to the integrity of not only your risk state as it sits today and your characterization of an incident that occurred is accurate, but your forward-looking view of risk has a level of objectivity with data and logic to back it. No different than a financial Um, forecast.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, And I guess when there are questions for both the CFO or GC, they can point to Sarbing's Oxley, or they could point to case law or, or something to say, yeah, but um, do, do we have that same ability as a CISO? I mean, we can point to other breaches, but.
1: I, 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 I don't know. I've always assumed that ability. Other people are waiting yeah. and asking for permission. And if you're waiting and asking for, for permission, I think you're setting yourself up for failure. I just look at it literally from the day I landed in the role. I took it as if I was the CEO, CFO equivalent for everything related to information risk. Now through that process, was I wrong a lot? You bet. Did I learn a lot? You bet. Will I continue to be wrong and learn? Yes. If you know, but, but that's also where, you know, failure can come in. If I'm, If I'm not willing to sometimes experience failure and a mistake of my opinion or my logic or my data, you know, and I've done that multiple times, but I've then learned from that recalibrated and and moved on. But where somebody couldn't give me logic or data to show that I was wrong, why would I ever budge? Well,
2: let me ask you this and Malcolm, because I mean, I, I often put, it, put my program management hat on where it's a different kind of risk. But I was responsible many years ago for bringing products to market. You're bringing a bunch of people together, a bunch of technology together and, and a bunch of requirements together to, to pull something off. And in there is risk. Right, technology doesn't work the way it goes supposed to, or the operating system doesn't provide a feature, or uh, yeah, somebody built something wrong, or <laughs> or that there's a security vulnerability in the in the release that you don't want to let it fly. Lots of stuff, but as you're approaching a point where under, you understand those things, you understand that those risks might be there. There's a lot of ambiguity, and yeah. now so for the CISO role, we. I think we, we have ambiguity, right? And, and we're marching toward our design goal as, as you describe it. Uh, how are we communicating it correctly? Do we understand it enough? Do we know where the holes are um, to say this is where the ambiguity sits? These are This is where I, I'm making the decision based on less information that I'm comfortable with, but based on my peers, based on, uh, examples from other, other organizations that we've seen get popped, <laughs> whatever. I'm to your point, putting my stake in the ground because I, my gut says, and, and experience says that this is this hole that I see is probably going to get filled with X, Y, and Z, which will then lead me to that material impact. So, yeah. Well, I, I think I a lot there, but thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple things. One, let's, let's, you know, Accept it. Let's also talk about accepting risk and acceptable risk because they're two different things, right? Accepting risk is a business process, it's not a control. And when you accept risk, you're also implicitly accepting the responsibility to respond to it should it ever manifest itself. And a lot of risk decision makers don't really think that way, right? They go, we accepted that risk and they move on as if, because they accepted it, it's no longer something that could occur, right? And, and that's, that's something that we've got to change in how we do risk acceptance. And then how we, um, when we make a risk decision, that's not permanent. There's a temporal aspect to risk, right? So we accept it today, but there's a temporal nature to it. So the, the, we should be revisiting some of those accepted risks over time and when we don't, that's also where we fail. Right, because assumptions change, the world changes. So put that on the side. Now on, on this ambiguity around the risk, I think there's a lot of ways you can reduce the ambiguity. Right, you go, okay, um, take log4j, right? What, two years ago or whatever? Big brouhaha, log4j, oh my God, patch everything, Syssa says this, SEC says if you don't do it, there's gonna be liabilities. Everybody says, oh my God, pull themselves through knot holes. I, I talk to a lot of peers. They're like, we don't know where it is. We don't know how many instances we have. I don't know the context of log4j in our environment. Spin around and around in circles for a week, You know. 10 days and they finally say, screw it, patch it all. Why? Because they didn't know where the instances of log4j were in an attack path that would lead to an exploitable event that would cause an exposure that would cause an oh shit moment and a material impact. Well, guess what? You can do that. You can do attack path mapping. You can understand the context of your environment in real time and know with precision where you have those exposures And then be able to discuss them with people. And if they go, yep, we agree with it, we're okay with it, then you go, okay, great. We have an exposure to a potential materially impacting event. Now, if I'm a public company, guess what? I have to update my risk statements in the public filings. And if anything goes bump along that path, I've also got to now disclose it as a cyber incident. Okay, you can do that. I was doing that manually back at Intel years ago and even at Silence you know, to some extent manually, but there's automation now that does that. You know, the other, the other aspect of this still becomes a, a little bit of the subjectivity. But again, you go, how do you reduce that? Well, go back to Sarbanes-Oxley, go back to financial materiality. There's line items in the balance sheet. There's line items there. Materiality by nature, materiality by impact walk back from the financials, walk back from business processes and and things that that could affect the business or your customer. Once you understand that, then it's just, again, it's hard work, but it's not that hard to figure out. I was having this dialogue um, earlier, uh, um, late last week, actually, Around artificial intelligence, right? And and you know, people are going, Wow, yeah, do I really need to have you know protection on the AI models and ML models? And I said, well, despite the fact that public models, a lot of them are already poisoned, they're just you know, um, in some cases have malicious code in them. You know, the tools that you're using for MLOps are compromised with code execution. So therefore, those tools then would allow an attacker to own the model and do all these things. And they know all that. And you give them all that data. But yeah, but it, it's, it's too early. I'm like, okay, let, let me give you an example. Uh, you're using artificial intelligence in your pharmaceutical company and you're using it to figure out drug interactions to re, you know, reduce health risk and you say it's okay not to protect it. Okay, you know, or you're using artificial intelligence. I was I was reading a couple of weeks ago, McKinsey had published a, uh, a study. And in fact, I posted one the other day. They talked about um, AI changing the travel industry, two to $4 trillion worth of economic benefit. Okay, if I can create that much benefit through the use of AI, therefore I can create that much damage and maybe more. So therefore, if I'm claiming a benefit in the technology that's a material benefit to the organization, if I'm a public company, I now have the obligation to protect that capability. Um, McKinsey did another one, Freeport McManoran, you know, a billion and a half dollars of shareholder value by using AI in the mining operations. Okay. Billion and a half dollars. That sounds pretty material to me, right? So, to me, it's not that hard. You just got to look at the financial flow and then go, well, what could be material by nature or material by impact? Map it out and where systems and data could do that. That's where you make your stand.
2: Uh, So many things in my head because. I mean, continuing to walk it back, you might say, well, it's only a handful of systems that that really interact or generate this material value, right? And certain sets of data, certain apps. But, uh, but then you look at a real way. network and you're like, yeah, this is just a big mess. It's all connected. You can't, it, you can't it separate it. <laughs> it.
1: It is. But this is where you have to have, well, I'll say the peanut butter spread of general controls yeah. and hygiene, right? But... Again, I'll give you an Intel example, and I've spoken about this for years. I still, at a macro level, because we started doing this in late 2001, what are the macro business processes that if we're offline or had some major issue would have a material impact to the business? Book, order, pay, build, ship, close, and communicate. Macro business processes. If I can't book an order, I miss revenue. Material impact. I can't ship a product. I miss revenue. Material impact. If I can't pay employees or suppliers, guess what? Material impact. But but there's a temporal nature to this, right? Every business has um, a cadence of their quarter. Intel is an example. It's dated. It might be different. The last two weeks of the quarter, biggest shipping window, biggest revenue window. Well, guess what? If if shipment is offline the first two weeks of the quarter, who gives a crap? Yeah, fix it, but it doesn't have the same level of materiality because guess what? I can expedite the shipments and still hit my revenue number, right? Building a product, if I'm in the early part of the design cycle, right? And I'm designing something that the, the time to revenue is several months out or year out, right? If I'm in tape out revenues closer, but if I'm at assembly test, that last mile of making a semiconductor before it gets shipped to Dell or somebody, that has the biggest impact on them, the biggest impact on me. But your yeah, payroll, okay, payroll's offline. November 7th, it's offline. Who gives a crap? Payroll cycles November 1st and November 15th. Doesn't matter if it's offline, right? You, like I said, it's work, but... That's what we should be doing and that's when we fail is when we haven't done that level of understanding of our business and understanding of risk.
2: So I, I think everybody's sitting in the roles thinking, yep, this is that part of the job sucks. I don't do it or I don't do it well or I don't do it often enough, right? They're all probably sitting there thinking something like that. Um, or, or maybe they're narcissists. And they said, well, I don't get support from the company. So let's, <laughs> in the last few minutes we have, because I think we touched on the industry and the individual uh, quite a bit at this point. Let's talk about the, the company culture. And I think you referred to it as the inertia of the, the organization. Um, where, where do things kind of fall down with respect to getting support from the business? Or do things fail for the role there?
1: It it's some so sometimes it actually is the CISO because the CISO hasn't done that connecting of the dots, the daisy chain of endpoints and systems and datas and network and all that stuff to the thing that matters to the business. Well, if you haven't done that work, of course the business isn't going to support you. Particularly when you've asked for more and more and more and more and more, and then continue to do that, and then you continue to have all these issues but right. I, I'm,
2: I'm going to guess that there are some people that say I don't get the opportunity to do that I'm, I'm told to buy a risk management tool and a bunch of controls and some, and some protection maybe outsource my, my response and then present every quarter how well we're doing patching and, and keeping stuff from, from going where I I don't get the chance to do that fancy work you're talking about, Malcolm. <laughs> Your company doesn't support me. Is that a, is that a there is, viable? A real?
1: There, there are in many circumstances, and I've talked to a lot of peers on this, where they've done all the work, they know what the risks are, they've had the discussions, they know they're underfunded in some areas, and the business still says, "Nope, we can't do it well, okay, you haven't failed. You just have to then document that the CEO, the CFO, and the general counsel, and the board are okay with a material risk. Now, if you don't document that, then I think you failed. But, but you know, sometimes the reality is businesses have challenges, right? I, I was at Intel where I had to do budget cuts and lay off people. Why? Because we missed revenue. Right, Intel's gone through layoffs even recently. You know, it, it, you know, so every company, every organization has budget fluctuations. Your job is to deal with those budget fluctuations. Now, again, there are times where I know, and I've, I've seen it, where CIO, a CTO, you know, another C-suite executive does not give a crap about security or privacy. They give lip service to it. Well. Frankly, if you can't go around them, through them, over them, or somehow remove them as a path in your decision making, then I think you need to look for another job. But don't, again, water down the integrity of what you're doing. Now, again, in other situations, it's just, you know, the business environment. I don't even you said you've talked, you, you've had responsibility of being product to market. I'm a former finance guy supporting general managers and stuff like that. I don't know any business leader with a budget who's ever gotten all the funding, all the resources, and all the timeline they needed to achieve their objective, right? You're head of sales. Okay. You have a target to hit a sales goal. You have a sales, cost of sales that you can hit and, and, and stuff, and you're told to hit it and you get creative, right? It' no different from any, this is the thing that drives me nuts about what I'll say, the whining from some security practitioners. They go, well, I didn't get the budget. Well, okay, nobody ever gets the entire budget they want.
2: Exactly, yep. Yeah, yeah you, you sell with f- fewer leads than, than you want and uh, less marketing collateral than you need.
1: <laughs> yeah, but that's the job. Nobody ever- Okay. Why does the CISO get to have everything they want? I, that's just not a reality in any organization. Special,
2: special Arkham, Arkham, special. <laughs> ah, boy. All right. Um, yeah, we're at we're at forty four minutes here. I, clearly, we can we can keep going for ages. I I, I want to save the liability piece, I'm going to pull together a conversation for that. So I'm going to, I'm going to invite you to, to join me for that with a few other folks. I think it's going to be interesting, especially knowing that you have a, a particular view that may not be popular <laughs> with, yeah. with some of the you others. Know, so that could be a, that could be a fun conversation. Yeah. But, um, you know, well, any, any quick thoughts on that while we're, while we're here?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, you can hear from my tone and my perspective and and how I view the role similar to being a CFO. If you haven't done the role with integrity, you haven't reported actual events in a way that is honest and true, you haven't done your forecasting of risk, honest and true, and you've swept stuff under the rug or manipulated the portrait of risk because of pressure, you deserve to be liable. Plain and simple in my mind um you know but it you know go back to the success thing and failure thing you know winston churchill had a really fantastic quote success is not final um failure is not fatal sometimes it is um but it's the courage to continue the count right we're on a journey but no finish line
2: yeah and i was gonna ask that because i mean is it okay to fail? And I'm just thinking when, when the handcuffs come, no, it's not okay. But, well, but I mean, we often say you want to fail, fail fast, learn from your, your mistakes and move on to your point, right? The courage to keep going. But when, when the penalties are, are severe, you don't want to fail. I wouldn't want I, well, to fail anyway. Which goes back to. Go to am I am to. I not wrong? Am I wrong for not wanting to be a CISO? No.
1: No. <laughs> well, but but, but again, it goes back to you know the CFO and other C-suite executives for financial integrity issues could be put in jail too. This is a financial integrity issue. It has been for almost twenty years. Right. I'm glad enforcement actions are starting to take place. That will then hopefully. Drive a level of real accountability and real upleveling of the CISO role into a C-suite for, uh, role for people that are capable and want to do it. And if they're not, don't don't take the role. But you know, again, it, it just becomes one of those items of, you know, the, I think the challenge we've had with with some of the charges. It's a shame that other executives have not been charged. That's, that's, I think the failure of some of the regulators to charge other executives, um, as well. Yep.
2: Yep. Well, I'm excited to have that conversation with you. Um, and a few other folks, so I'm going to, I'm going to get on that. I think it's going to be an interesting, interesting chat. (laughs) Um, so loads of fun there anyway. Um, Malcolm. Always good. My mind's a little bent from uh, from all the fun stuff you just shared. Uh, I'm not a CISO, if you can figure that out. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by the role. Um, I love risk management, so I can completely appreciate that. And even without a finish line, uh, I, I can totally appreciate getting from current state to better state and better state and better state, kind of making progress. Not with all the budget, because you never get it, to your point. Um, and I, and I can, uh, I can appreciate what, what folks have to go through as they try to walk that line that, uh, that maybe they didn't, didn't have the opportunity to define their goals in the right way, or don't have the, the, the means to achieve those goals in, in the best way possible. Um, but to your point, if you, if you can keep your, Keep your head on you, on yourself, and keep things straight, and uh, and and keep your morals at the center of everything. Then uh, I think you are in better shape. I don't know if that. Is, uh, it'd be interesting to see if this impacts um, folks wanting to have the role. Uh, I have imagined, I have it, uh, an an inkling that it might. Right. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Absolutely. We'll see. All right. Well, uh, we're not, we're not a fail- failure in this role. Uh, we're yeah. continuing to learn. We make mistakes. I guess that's probably the better way to say it. right. Make a mistake and learn, um, yep. and set those design goals. I think that's a big takeaway for me. Take, take that time, connect those dots. And, uh, I think everything flows from there. So thanks Malcolm. I don't know any, any final thoughts from you before we wrap
1: you know it's been it's been great to have this this discussion um you know and again it's a tough role and no different than any other executive role and you know the complexity and the challenges of it are going to continue to grow and the only way in which we'll we'll mature ourselves and mature the role itself and codify it more in the industry is to have dialogues like this and And again, learn from each other's perspectives, learn from each other's mistakes and, and, you know, recognize that having a mistake or a failure really only becomes what I'll say, a a catastrophic failure. If you're not learning from it.
2: Yep. Yep. Repeat the failure over and over. Um, all right, Malcolm, we'll, we'll leave it here. Uh, lots for folks to chew on, certainly myself and uh I'll include a link for those listening I'll include a link to Occam's post so go there comment uh on your own what you think about uh Occam's position on the on the other LinkedIn post that uh, inspired him to uh to share and uh which then drove this conversation. I think you mentioned another another uh, post you did too so we'll, we'll include that here as well and uh yeah i mean i mean this is a topic that I'm sure lots of people have thoughts on so I'd be surprised if we don't get some feedback (laughs) somewhere socially on this. Uh, Anyway, so thanks everybody for listening. Be sure to stay tuned, Uh, share it uh, with your friends and enemies, and uh, subscribe so you can can hear this. And the next one we're going to have with Malcolm and a few other folks. So thanks again, Malcolm. Thanks, everybody. Catch you on the next one.
1: Thanks, Sean. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at pentera.io. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Cybersecurity with Sean Martin, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this show and itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand with our conversations, you can sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.